Well, we are going to start a new um, kind of mini-series the next, I think, four or five weeks. We're going to be looking at a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You'll see those mountains there. Uh, it's the sermon, a very large sermon, it takes up a big chunk of the book of Matthew that Jesus preached. And there's, you know, it's, uh, we can't just preach that sermon, right? So we've got to dig in to preach sermons about Jesus' sermon to see if we can figure out exactly what we need to know about it. So we're in Matthew 6 this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 6. Or you can follow along with the screen uh, above my head. Listen now as I, as I read to us from God's Word, from the voice of Jesus, Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful for the time that we have to study it, to dig in here to the way that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, as we read these words from Jesus, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would loosen our grips on the things of this world and tighten them on your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today through your powerful word in order to change us. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a, uh, there's a story that I'm, I'm sure is apocryphal, but it's good anyway. Just picture a pastor in a wealthy church, and he's sitting down in his office to have a conversation with one of his wealthy church members, and the church member is talking about the difficulty he's having with coming to grips with the idea of tithing. And he says, you know, when I was younger, and I was making $20,000 a year, you know, giving a few hundred dollars to the church was no big deal. I could do that. I could handle it. It was all right. He said, but now I'm making $2 million a year. And so giving $200,000 to the church, I just can't come to grips with that concept. I don't know what to do. And this wise pastor said, well, I understand the difficulty. Why don't we pray? and ask the Lord to enter in and help us here. And so they bowed their heads, and the pastor prayed, Lord, we're thankful for this man and the ways that you have blessed him. And I pray, Lord, that you would reduce his salary to a point at which he feels now comfortable tithing on it again. <laughs> What's got a hold of our hearts is really the question that's being asked in this passage. What do we do with our money our possessions, our property, the stuff of life that we gather together. What's its role in our life, and particularly, what is the role of money in our hearts? You know, oftentimes churches get, uh, get kind of castigated for either never talking about money or for seemingly always talking about money. 
but Jesus actually talks about money a lot. So it's helpful that we open up his word and we see what he has to say about the connection between our checkbooks and our hearts. And this, uh, this passage is it's wonderfully divided up for preachers because it really kind of lays itself out into three distinct sections. It's perfect. And the first few verses, really the big question being asked is, what's your treasure? What do you treasure? And then Jesus kind of shifts to an illustration and he kind of asks this question, what are you looking at? That's what are you looking at, not what are you looking at, you know, so just FYI. And then he really ends with the big question, what do you worship? And they're all connected and we're going to see that. But let's start where Jesus starts. What is it that we treasure? Jesus first says this. He says, now when, or excuse me, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is eminently practical. Isn't that really wonderful? It's good to kind of sit in that for just a second and realize, you know, it's good that Jesus deals with regular things and he is practical. And he tells us, listen, if you are going to build your life and your feelings of success and your feelings of identity and your security, if you're going to build it on the treasures that are stored up here, guess what? Those things are liable to not be here tomorrow, either because they're going to rot or rust or fade away or because somebody is going to break in and take it. So listen, why don't you store up some treasures that aren't really, uh, that aren't subject to all of that kind of harm? Jesus is very practical. And of course, we know that Jesus' words are true here. If you look at a couple of different uh, data points in the world lately, you'll see two things that are going on. One, almost every study that you read will tell you that our world, and especially our country, our culture, is getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. We have more money. We have more disposable money. The size of the homes that we live in is like a thousand square feet bigger than it was 50 years ago. We have more even government services, so there's more available to people and there's more wealth to be had. By almost every standard, the people in our country are wealthier than they ever have been. But if you also look at all of the studies that somehow try to figure out how to gauge happiness, Guess what's happening with our happiness? It's going down. Almost all of the sociologists who study these things will say our level of happiness is decreasing at about the same rate that our wealth is increasing. Maybe Jesus is onto something here. Not only do the things that we treasure up have a tendency to fade away or be taken from us, but you know what? They're not even doing what they, we think they're supposed to do, which is make us happy. And of course, that kind of gets us to the deeper level here, that Jesus is wonderfully, wonderfully practical, but it's not just practicality that he's talking about. He's talking about what we value, what we treasure, what we hold dear. In fact, Jesus, almost any time when he talks about money and the rest of the Bible, when it talks about money, doesn't talk as much about money as it does about our attitude toward our money, our thinking about our money, the way that our hearts are drawn to our possessions and our stuff because you can actually be a very greedy person and a very poor person at the same time. You can have your mind completely wrapped around the concept of your wealth and your possessions and you can have an abundance or you can have very little. It doesn't matter how much you have. What Jesus is talking about is how our hearts are drawn to it. 
So he says here two really important things, and I think two fascinating things that come out of these few verses, maybe stuff that we didn't see uh, right at the beginning. And the first is this, in verse 21, he says, kind of closing this section out, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I don't know if that sounded weird to any of y'all, as maybe it did to me when I first read it, but I actually would have expected Jesus to say just the opposite. Where your heart is, there's your treasure. That seems to make more sense, doesn't it? If I really love baseball cards, I'm going to have a lot of baseball cards, right? If I really love watches, I'm going to have a lot of watches. If I really love to read, I'm going to have bookshelves full of books because my heart leads to what I'm going to treasure up. That's true, but it's actually not what Jesus says. And I think what Jesus says, the truth that he explains here is something more subtle and more powerful, and it's this is that the way that we live will actually determine what we love. Our actions shape our hearts. What we treasure, even though we don't totally understand it or see it all the time, will end up being what we love. It happens below the surface. It happens under the hood in an unconscious way. The patterns that we put our lives into, the things that we begin to treasure up, will become for us the things that we love, even if we don't say that we love them. Think about Jesus' interaction in Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler. Remember that? Young man comes to him and he says, he says, Lord, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, let's talk about what you love, right? Do you love the commandments? How are you following those? And he says, I love the Lord's commandments. I love the Lord. Everything is great. And Jesus says, okay, in a way only Jesus can do. Let's talk about then what you treasure. Why don't you sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me? And Matthew tells us that man went away sad because he had much possession. See, what Jesus says is you can tell me what you love, but I'm going to tell you what you treasure. And what you treasure is going to show me what you love. The second really fascinating thing I believe in this passage is also a little hard to see at first. And it's in these first few phrases. Let me read them again and just kind of see if we can dissect them a little bit. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. You know, Whenever I've thought about this, this image kind of has come to my mind, you know, and it's, it's don't lay up for yourself a treasure like, and I think of like a big bag of money, right? Don't stack up a big bag of money for yourself here because it's either going to burn, you know, or it's going to be stolen, it's going to go away, and it's not going to be good. But rather, start stacking up things for the future. Start making deposits on your eternal life so that that stack of money kind of is in heaven and you're going to get it someday when you get to heaven. That's the way that I've always thought about this image. And that may be what Jesus is saying. Jesus does say in many times, you know, you're going to sow now and you're going to reap later. But I actually think there's something else going on here. And just bear with me for a second because we're going to zoom out for a second. So in all of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a couple of big themes that keep coming up. First of all, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, what you see Jesus saying over and over and over is your heavenly Father. He says your heavenly Father, and he says it over and over and over. He tells them your heavenly Father loves you. He adores you. He has set his love on you. Therefore, here's then how to act. 
And remember, he says, you know, don't go pray on the street corners so that everybody thinks you're the greatest man of prayer around because you're doing that to gain the approval of the people around you. But your heavenly Father, who loves you, who cares for you, who has already given you his full acceptance, he hears and sees what you do in secret. So do it for him. And don't go fast and, and you know, wear these terrible clothes so that everybody knows you're fasting so that they go, oh, what a pious person that is, so that you're gaining the approval of the other people around you. Rather, your heavenly Father, who loves you and already has given you his full approval, sees what you're doing, and that's the approval that you need. You don't need to go find the approval of others. You have it from the Lord. That's so much of his argument throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And then remember when he teaches his, his, uh, his people how to pray, he says, Heavenly Father, right? That's how we're supposed to start. There's that concept again. And then he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Christians are supposed to desire heavenly things that come to fruition here on earth. We are supposed to treasure, if you will, heavenly things and to see them actually take root here and make fruit on earth. So with those two thoughts in mind, here's what I think Jesus is actually saying to us. Don't treasure up things here on earth that are going to be destroyed, but treasure up here on earth the things that you already have in heaven. Treasure the love and acceptance that your Father has already shown to you. Treasure the fact that your Heavenly Father has given Himself for you. Treasure the fact that you have been made His own and love and desire to see your Heavenly Father smile. That's what Jesus wants us to treasure up. Not some reward that we deposit now and reap later, but actually a reward that we, is deposited in the future that we get to reap now. The wonderful eternal truth that God has given himself to us through his son, that he has accepted us based on what Jesus has done for us, that he has lavished us with his grace and mercy, and that what we treasure is to make our father happy. Think about a young child, a three-year-old girl who works all day to paint a beautiful picture for her daddy when he comes home for work. And she paints this incredible, you know, finger painting and signs her name at the bottom in some kind of, you know, broken little odd way. I love you, Daddy. And she works all day on it. And when her dad comes home, what's she going to do? She's going to give him this picture, and she's going to hand it to him. And then and, and imagine this. Maybe you've been in this position before, where the father's eyes just start to light up, and his face starts to shine. And he looks at this, and he says, oh, this beautiful gift that you have given me, it's so wonderful, sweetie. Thank you so much. And what happens to her face? The same thing, right? Her eyes begin to shine. Her face lights up. She says, I love you, Daddy, and I've worked, and it so, makes me so happy to see you smile. She's not working to gain the love and acceptance of her father, is she? She is pouring out her love, and she wants to see him smile because she knows she already has the love and acceptance of her father. Friends, that's what we treasure we treasure the smile of our daddy. We treasure the smile of our heavenly father. 
When we follow in his ways, when we obey his commands, when we seek to be formed by him and shaped by him, when we die to ourselves, what we are doing is we are loving the fact that our heavenly father who loves and accepts us is smiling at us now. And he's saying, well done. Great picture. It makes me happy. That's what we are to treasure. So let me just kind of pause and ask us this question. What is it that we treasure? What do you treasure in your life? Is it the, the fading and the fleeting things? Is it the stuff that's going to burn up, dry up, rot, get stolen? Or is it the beautiful treasure that Jesus has laid up for you in heaven already? The eternal pleasure of your heavenly Father. He moves on to a second question here too. And it's this question, what, what are you looking at? Jesus uses an illustration for us. Listen again to these verses. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Uh, Joy has been in the process of getting new glasses lately. And um, by process, I really mean process. It has taken a long time. Uh, you know, the first glasses came out and the, and, the, and the frames were wrong and they didn't fit. And then the new glasses came and the frames were fine, but the lenses were off. And we kept going back and forth, you know, to the optometrist and she would do all these little tweaks and look and okay, if I just tilt them a little bit this way, then your eye is just a little bit further, you know, from the lens and does that fix it? Because she would look through these glasses that are supposed to actually correct her vision and everything would be blurry. Same thing happens to me. Actually, when I put these glasses on, all of you look kind of blurry, but when I don't put them on, I can't read, so I have to kind of go with one or the other. Glasses are supposed to help us see so that we can, they can guide our lives appropriately. If we don't see correctly, then we're going to you know, run into stuff. We're going to take the wrong road. We're going to take the wrong turn. We're going to end up in a place that we don't want to be. I think sometimes, even though this sounds a little confusing, this is a very plain kind of image that Jesus has given. Listen, if your eyes are closed or bad, or if you're wearing the wrong lenses, you're going to be led totally wrong. And the truth is, our culture loves to give us some other lenses to look through, doesn't it? Listen to these words. This is from a biblical commentator named Frederick Dale Bruner. Listen to what he says here. It is characteristic of the secular world to be obsessed with economic questions, to be almost entirely engrossed by consumer concerns, to be preoccupied with finding and getting better and better things. The world has a religion, acquisition, the getting of money. But Jesus will not have his disciples believe the world's religion or be possessed by the secular demon of possession. Jesus wants disciples to know that there is already a God who gives attention to the, to the legitimate sub-concerns of possession. His name is your Father. We are asked by Jesus to turn our backs on the goals and the goods of this world to be the real atheists of our culture, denying the gods to whom we most give unquestioned loyalty. See, Jesus is saying your culture around you wants to put on a particular pair of glasses for you. Resist it because it's gonna lead you in the wrong direction. Now, I am just as susceptible to this as anybody else, probably more. And there are some even categories, I think, in my life that are the things that I tend to have my eye on a lot. And they fall into basic categories. There's, you know, kind of uh, the beautiful things. I like clothes, 
I like home furnishings. I like stuff that looks good and smells good and feels good. I like stuff that's beautiful, and my eye is oftentimes drawn to it. Or maybe it's fancy things, electronics. I mean, if it's got an Apple logo on it, I probably want it. Or maybe it's stable things. Maybe that's what you're drawn to most, right? How's my bank account doing right now? How's my retirement account? Ooh, I've got my eye on this new stock that's going to really set me up for the future. How are things going to be for me later on? Or maybe it's flashy things, the things that not only make us feel good about ourselves, but we think are going to make other people think that we're really great, the stuff that's going to show everybody how great we are in life, and they're going to draw them to us because of our stuff. We're drawn to those things, aren't we? Our eye is so oftentimes on them. But there's a deep connection between what Jesus has said in the previous verses and what he says here. It goes like this. What you treasure becomes what you love that then becomes what you have your eye on that leads you. So if what we treasure is shaping our hearts, then it's also shaping our vision. How is our vision being shaped by the world around us? What do you have your eye on lately? What are you looking at most intently? Is it the love, the affection, the acceptance shown by you, shown to you by God through Christ? Or is it something fleeting? Here's the third big question that Jesus gets to, and it's the deepest one of all. What do you worship or what do you serve? Listen again to these last few verses. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus kind of continues his line of argument here. What you treasure shapes your heart. You'll love it. That will shape what you look at and what you follow, but what you follow is going to end up being what you serve, what you worship, who your God is. Some of you may have uh, an older translation that ends this with, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is actually the word in the original text. It's, uh, it's an odd word because it's in Aramaic. It's an Aramaic word. Most of the Gospel of Matthew and most of uh, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. But Jesus and Matthew insert for us in here this Aramaic word, and I think do, does it for a reason, so that it kind of rings true to us. And if you've got it in there, it's probably capitalized as well. Because what Jesus seems to be doing is kind of personifying this word. It's a word that really just means possessions. It means your own possessions or wealth. It doesn't have a positive or a negative kind of connotation to it. But what Jesus does by kind of focusing in on this word is he almost gives it a godlike character. So there's this general pagan false god of mammon that's set up over and against the true god of Israel, Yahweh. And what Jesus is saying is that if your heart is going to be drawn to the things that you treasure and your eye is going to lead you to those things, what you will end up doing is you will be serving not the Lord, but you will be serving something completely different. You will have displaced the Lord at the center of the universe, and you will then put him as one of those orbiting planets and everything in your life, including God and the people around you and everything else will be used to serve that false God possession of wealth, of money. 
I recently rewatched uh, a movie, a 2017 Ridley Scott movie called All the Money in the World. Maybe some of you have seen this. And it tells the story, that's a, a true story based on true events, uh, of, John, of John Paul Getty, who's the, the grandson of J. Paul Getty, who at the time of his death was the richest private citizen in the world. And the movie opens, and it's, it's in Rome in 1973, and you see this young 16-year-old boy. You learn his name is Paul, and he's just kind of walking the streets, probably in an area that he shouldn't be in, and a van pulls up and kidnaps him, and pulls him in. And we learn pretty soon after that that this Paul is no just regular Paul. He is John Paul Getty III. He is the grandson of J. Paul Getty. And, of course, they've kidnapped him for a ransom. $17 million they want to hold him ransom for. And so they call his mother and demand the ransom. And his mother, though, has actually divorced his father, J. Paul Getty Jr., and she doesn't have access, actually, to the family fortune anymore. She doesn't have anywhere close to $17 million. So what is a mother supposed to do when some random criminals in Europe call and say, we've got your son and we need money? Well, of course, she goes to granddad, who has literally all the money in the world. And that's really where the story is centered, is on J. Paul Getty Sr., the rich man, and how he is going to deal with this idea of his grandson being kidnapped. His grandson, who he continually calls throughout the movie his favorite grandson, Special Paul. But right from the very beginning, we learn that he has decided not to pay the ransom. He refuses to pay it. He says, if I start paying ransoms, they'll start kidnapping all of my grandchildren. I'm not going to pay any of this money. But we learn as the movie goes on that it's not just kind of this practical argument of trying to protect all of his other grandchildren. He just doesn't want to let go of any of his money. And in fact, through multiple kind of negotiations, he, he has a man that works for him named Fletcher Chase, former CIA agent. And he sends Fletcher in to do the negotiating for the boy, to try and kind of negotiate him. And throughout the movie, uh, the boy starts to be treated more and more poorly. I mean, he's held captive the whole time. This is months. It's over the course of months. He ends up being sold to some other folks, you know, investors, uh, that, that they will then be the ones who take the ransom money. And finally, Fletcher Chase ends up negotiating the price down a little bit, and there's this really poignant scene where he walks in, and he's realized the danger that's happened with this boy. In fact, the kidnappers have cut off his ear and sent it to the police. So he recognizes he's in the hands of some very bad men, and this is going to go south in a hurry. And he comes to the grandfather, J. Paul Getty, and he says, we have got to do something. You have got to pay the ransom. You have to pay this. And it's, so, it's, it's an amazing scene where he, he's, look, he's literally looking at the stock ticker. He made all of his money in oil, and he's watching the price of oil skyrocket. It's going higher and higher every day. And he says, there's some things in my financial position that have changed, and I just, I just, I just can't pay the ransom. I can't do it. And Chase then replies, he says, <laughs> he says, you are literally the wealthiest person in the world at this very moment. And the grandfather replies, I just have no ability to pay. What if, what if my position changes? What, what, if, what if the oil embargo changes and then I'm in a really risky position? And he says this, he, uh, the Fletcher Chase responds, and he says, um, he says, so what would it take for you to feel secure? And the old man's answer is more. The tension kind of rises. The boy is in more danger. 
And the next kind of scene we see, actually, we see what we think is the old man kind of walking in and doing some negotiating. He walks into this kind of shadowy, you know, uh, fancy place and meets with a guy who looks a lot like a mob boss. And he's got a briefcase full of money. And he opens up the briefcase, and there's cash in there. And the mob boss says, OK, you're ready, you're ready to do the deal. And we think that he's finally broken down, and he's bringing all this money to get his grandson out. But what we realize is that he's actually buying a painting a painting that's going to cost him more than the kidnappers are asking for the ransom for his grandson. And as you get further and further on, what you realize is that the grip is so tight on this man that he not only fights to keep his money, half of his other fight is actually leverage over the mother in order to gain custody of his grandson. So he's fighting for custody of his grandson because he loves his grandson and at the same time fighting to keep him, to keep from spending his money because he loves his money. And what you realize is he doesn't really love his grandson. He just wants to own things. And he owns people just like he owns things. In fact, there's this fascinating thing at the end. He, he finally realizes, he calls the mother and says, okay, we're going to pay the ransom. And they all get together at this boardroom table with lawyers and he says, I've got great news my advisors have told me how to figure out how we can get little Paul home <laughs> because they've told me now that I can take a tax write-off if I give a loan to my son instead. And he's figured out exactly how much he can actually give away that he can write off on his taxes that will be exactly the amount to give away. If, of course, his mother signs over her parental rights to him. He's still using it even as leverage. By the end of the movie, finally the boy is released. Some of the ransom is paid. But there's no hugs and celebrations at the end. The closing scene of the movie really is the old man sitting by a fire, completely alone, with the painting that he has just bought on his wall above him, coughing, about to die, crying out for the name even of his butler, who's nowhere around to be found. In fact, uh, the, the, the actual, in the actual case, again, this is true events, in the actual case, the, the, the mother had, had convinced her son to call his grandfather to thank him, but the grandfather even refused to pick up the phone, would not receive even the thanks call from his grandson. It's a, it's a terrible <laughs> ending to a movie. It spirals down and down but it is the perfect illustration of what it means for a heart to serve only one master. Because Jesus says not only will you end up hating the Lord, but we see displayed here too is that the collateral damage is that you will also end up hating all the people around you. And you will die lonely and old, and you will have your money, and it will never go with you. If we treasure, friends, our possessions, then that's the way that we end up. Our hearts, it may not look like J. Paul Getty, because probably most of us aren't going to have the ability to look like J. Paul Getty. But you know, if you dig down and look underneath our hearts, it's probably going to look very similar. We're going to treasure, it's going to shape our hearts, it's going to direct our lives, and we're going to end up serving something that we never thought we would actually serve. But friends, if we treasure the Lord, if we treasure the grace that we have been given in Christ, then it will shape in us a love for Jesus that leads us to him, to serve him and him alone. And what will happen to us is something amazing. 
is that our hands will actually begin to open. We will start to be generous. We will cling less tightly to the things of this world because we will know more fully that our Lord takes care of us better than anybody in the world, that he loves to lavish his love and grace on us, that he has us in the palm of his hands. And as we understand that more and more, we actually become generous because we know a Jesus, a Savior, who himself is generous. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus left his wealth, that he gave up his wealth so that he might lay it down so that we might through him become wealthy, that he gave up his throne in heaven because he treasured us more than he treasured his position, and he laid down his life for us so that we might become his treasure. Friends, that is what we are to gather up, to store up, to stack up in our lives so that we might become those who serve the Lord and serve him only and open our hands to all others. Let's pray that God would do that in our hearts even now. Father, make us those who treasure not earthly things but heavenly things. Not that we might someday reap a reward that we might hold other, over others, but that we might realize the reward that you have already given us. That we might treasure it. That we might love to see your smile. That we might love to walk in your ways. That we might love to obey your commands. That we might love to be formed and shaped by your word. That we might love to lay our lives down for each other. Because we know, Lord, and we treasure that that makes you smile, it makes you happy. So, Lord, will you work on our hearts by working on our eyes? Will you work on our worship by working on what we treasure? Will you show us, Lord, what it means to cling to you and to you alone? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.